Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is journalist Sarah Gensler. Sarah Gensler is a reporter who has found her niche in holding government accountable to the people it serves. She will soon be the state government watchdog reporter at Flatwater Free Press. Most recently, Gensler worked at the Omaha World Herald, where she broke stories on Nebraska footing the bill and refusing to admit it for deploying state troopers to the southern border and the state's practice of inking millions in no-bid contracts with an out-of-state company during the pandemic. Sarah Gensler, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stuart. Happy to be here. I want to set the stage a little bit with a couple of questions. And, and to do that, I want to ask about your motto, which is on your website. And the motto says, I tell complicated stories simply. Mm-hmm. Could you explain a little more behind that? Sure. And first, I should apologize for my website being grossly out of date. I think it's <laughs> not something I've thought about in a bit. Um, but when I first thought of that that sort of motto, um, I think my role as a journalist is to distill these things that people like are important. It's important to them, important to their lives, but maybe they don't have the tools or the time to dedicate to it. That's what I'm there for. Um, so things that seem really complicated or are really complicated, um, don't get the attention or don't, uh, aren't easy to absorb unless you have uh, those things, the time and the resources. I have the time and the resources as, as a journalist. That's my whole shtick. That's my whole thing, right? And so I am the thing that's between that complicated topic and the person who needs it. Um, and that requires me to simplify and distill and uh, break down and get to the bottom of these things for people. When did you come up with that mm-hmm. motto? Mm-hmm. Several years ago. <laughs> uh, let's say like 2017, 2018, I would guess. I'm asking because I think in our conversation, we will explore, perhaps get a little deeper into some of the things that you have been doing. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if at the beginning of our conversation, if you think you might change that motto given the period of time that has elapsed and the things that you've been doing since then? Mm. Well, that will be interesting. I am eager to find out. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, yeah, because I haven't rethought it, right? I haven't rethought it in a really long time. So, And Let's not to see. suggest at all that it's incorrect, but but you did mention that it's mm-hmm. um, it was formulated a few years back. Oh, yeah. And, and a lot's happened since then. Yeah, and I think back then, it's interesting too to think about how I haven't updated my website in a long time because at that time, when I when I wrote that, I was at a point in my life where I was uh, not sure exactly how I was going to get back into journalism and do this thing that I love so much. And it was on this process of sort of self-reflection and self-branding, for lack of a better word, that led me to that slogan. And the fact that I've kind of neglected that website kind of, I think, reflects that I'm happy with where I've gotten. I don't feel the need to keep rebranding myself anymore. <laughs> so maybe it will be a different slogan this time. Um, so the other part of setting the stage, I think, um, alongside the motto, is just to launch ourselves way back. So I just mm-hmm. want to ask you to share a little about your childhood, what stands mm-hmm. out. In the context of this conversation, knowing that 
it's leading to like profession, my professional life. I'd say the most um, indicative, well, the, well the, the biggest hint that I had of what was coming, uh, or my parents had, is I would keep my mom up really, really late telling her stories when I before I could write um, in words and letters. And uh, at some point, she was just like, you know, I need to get some sleep. She bought me a journal, and she said, just write down what you have to say and tell me in the morning. But I couldn't write yet, so I would just draw pictures. And then in the morning, read them to her in pictures. Um, and that so that was something that I think, and I just had a lot of things that I needed to say um, and a lot of stuff in my head that I needed to get out. Uh, other than that, I was a kid who was pretty, I was the youngest of three. My brothers were older, much older than me. Well, five and eight years, not much older than me. Um, I was, so I would be carted along to their events all the time. It was a lot of my, if I loved it, it was always kind of like, what's coming next? Where am I going? What's, um, I enjoyed being very active, going really fast, doing things. Um, I was injured quite a bit <laughs> for that reason. Um, that's my my childhood was was really great though. I grew up in Gretna, uh, right outside of Omaha. Um, wonderful experiences. Uh, growing up, I feel really lucky for that. We'll talk in a while about that transition then from being um, innately curious, innately imaginative, innately a storyteller mm-hmm. into the um, academic and then the professional world mm. of storytelling or journalism. Mm-hmm. I, I'm. Curious, so if you might share one or two stories that might give a sense of what it is that you do now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an effort to get voter ID on the ballot in Nebraska. Um, so essentially, require uh, photo ID for people to vote or to register to vote. Um, the question there is, with a policy proposal like that. What is it trying to solve? Policy um, is typically aimed at some perceived issue and perceived problem. Uh, So the perceived problem in this case would be uh, voter fraud that would be solved via a photo ID requirement when you vote. Um, It's So to answer that question, as a journalist, my question is, okay, so what's the history of this issue? Is there... A track record of this, um, and it's not like there's some sort of database somewhere b- beyond just going into court records and seeing that. Uh, so, who do I need to ask? So you ask longtime Secretary of State. Ask um, I don't even remember who I. I asked like six different people, interviewed them just in depth. Like, okay, so is this like history? Someone from history, Nebraska. Um, when's the last time this happened? And it led to some really fun conversations, like the history. I ended up writing a sidebar about these like shenanigans and election history from way back that were super fun to, to learn about. Uh, but the short answer is, no, this hasn't happened in any way that would be prevented by this. Um, and so then the follow-up is, then why would you do this? And that's So in that case, my role is not just taking at face value people's arguments for why something is good, but figuring out actual motivation or trying to get to the root of what's actually happening here and uh, answer a question for voters that maybe they hadn't thought to ask or had asked and didn't know how to answer. That's one example. Um, I'll I'll go with the state patrol story, too. So that one is more like, again, not taking it at face value. Uh, When the governor announced that they were going to deploy 
Nebraska State Patrol troopers to the southern border of the United States, um, it wasn't clear where that money was going to come from for them to do that. Uh, in asking that question over and over again, I never got a straight answer. And so rather than just kind of saying, all right, moving on, you still have to write the original story that's like they're sending troopers to the border and then include their quote that says, we're going to try to get reimbursed by the state of Texas where they were going. Um, but in the background, then it's also requesting public records, trying to figure out, okay, there has to be more to that. And this is a accountability issue because it's taxpayer money. And yeah, so that's like serving the reader part of it is this matters. Um, and then it's just, yeah, driving after those records, driving after that answer, the actual answer to that question. And finally, eventually got a hold of records that showed that they had signed an agreement that said in big, bold letters, uh, Texas is not going to, essentially Nebraska's footing the bill. Um, and it was right there in all caps with asterisks around it in this contract. And it was like, and, and still, the state would. Their answer was, "We still are hoping that you know they're gonna in a special session they'll do, they'll reimburse us, whatever." Um, but moral of the story there for what my job is is not taking it at face value again. Figuring out the actual answer, it's a, it's like a, a way to hold government accountable. Two astonishing stories, and I think you reported those specifically for the World Herald. I did, locally. yes. Okay. Um, and those are just examples of the kind of stories that you're telling and the kind of uh, issues where government perhaps is failing to be transparent or held accountable to uh, basically to the people, we, mm-hmm. the people. How do you source stories? It kind of it is a variety of ways. Um, I have a running document of things I want to look into. I have a spreadsheet of all the public records requests that I have entered and tracking them and trying to figure out. Like, So there's a million stories waiting to be written just because it's like, okay, this record probably exists. It could tell us a lot. And then there's how many stories from that. But in cases like voter ID, it's looking at something that has like an effort that has money and powerful people behind it. And asking the questions of it, like, what is this for? I mean, any any big petition drive has that. There's the minimum wage. There's marijuana. Oh, there was marijuana. There's, like, at least um, any um, <laughs> of those efforts have, have that have that piece of why and um, for who. And I think those questions, when you look to answer them, can become a story, might become a story. In the voter ID case, it did. The state troopers one was more like... They put out a press release. There was more there in what they didn't say than what they did say. And then I feel like there's probably more to this story. And so it's filling in that gap with public records, and that becomes the story. Um, but, you know, there's also just journalists spitballing, talking about things and realizing, oh, yeah, that'd be good. Like, I, I've never heard of that. Or, uh, oh, I heard somebody over in this state did a great investigation on this. Like, maybe worth it. You know, requesting those documents here, or seeing what we get, that sort of thing. Does the story tell you how it wants to be investigated, or is there, as it were, um, an investigative journalist's playbook to mm. get to the story? I don't. There's probably a more efficient way to do it than I would do it. I would assume. But what I do is, I, <laughs> it starts with just talking to people who know more than me, um, and say if it's about records, figuring out what record I would have ideally, what 
what, um, say, state agency that might come from, approaching the agency and saying, does this exist? How could I just have it? Can I have it? <laughs> or do I need to go through this other channel and, um, you know, officially request it? So it's it starts by talking to people who know more than I do. And that's the, like such a fun part of being a journalist is just talking to all these people who have specialized in things uh, and know so much. I would imagine that there are moments when you've entered a story, the, the journey into getting into the story that you think you're exploring. And along the way, it's turned into something else. I'm sure. Yeah. And I, I wonder if if that's common or is it usually a pretty simple trajectory from start to finish? I'm not sure if there is a typical journey that a story takes. I think it's important to be open to it not being the story you think it is. Otherwise, you're just you start with the thesis and then you write it. It's like a grade school paper, right? And that's just not. It's more. I guess I'll use an example. So, um, Nomi Health, this this entity from Utah. Um, I thought I think I originally was just looking at how the uh, test Nebraska contract had changed over time, and when I went into the uh, database of um, contracts, there was a bunch more that I wasn't familiar with in there. And then I went ahead and called I think DHHS or maybe it was uh, DAS for um, more. I was like just asking, okay, I want all of the contracts that you've that you've signed with this company. And there was just, there was more than I would have expected. It was something, I don't I think it was 69 million in, in contracts and it was like several. And then I, that I decided to look and see if Nomi had made any political contributions and they had to the state Republican party, um, at, at least before one of those contracts was signed. It wasn't like before any of them were, but that was a different story than I thought I was going to write. That was more like you hit on something and then you're like, Oh, there is, more here that is more important than this one thing I was looking at. Uh, so that's how something could evolve in a way that's exciting. There's also times when you think there's a story, you get there and there isn't one and you have to admit that and not write a stupid story. <laughs> it must be difficult to begin a story and realize that perhaps either the story isn't the one you thought you were going to tell, the one you wanted to tell, or perhaps maybe even worse, I don't know, you tell me that frankly, there just is no story there. I think it's kind of, so you just can't be precious about it. It's so much more important that you're accurate and and uh, doing your, your job well. It's almost like, it, it feels good because you know that you're doing the right thing and you're not messing around. You know, it's, it's, it's not, yeah, it's a bad feeling when you have to kill a story, but it's also like, how much worse would it be to run with something and then, realize that you're misinforming the readers or you are so blinded by your own bias or by your own desire to get a story out that you've written something that's totally unhelpful or counterproductive. The flip side to that, of course, is a story that is, um, you know, well, let's just say Watergate. It's the Watergate of your mm -hmm. storytelling career. Um, have you had a moment or a story that really has had great implications for the public, the public narrative, the way the government conducts its business? I don't know yet. I don't know if I've had one. I wouldn't say that. Like, I think that's still to come for me 
probably, I hope. Um, I mean, everyone, any journalist would hope that that's coming at some point. I think that I've had exciting times in the, where it's like, this is important. Like when I got a hold of that contract for state troopers and, but that's no water. You know, it's like, uh, it's a good feeling and it feels like, okay, I'm doing something that's important for people to know. Um, and I would imagine it's only a deeper feeling. And I think that the more that you, that you go through these, this process of killing stories that aren't there, like going down rabbit holes, pulling yourself back out, the better that will feel when you finally do something that is what you have wanted to do the whole time, what you've been looking for the whole time, and you find it and it's pure and it's actually there. Like that, I'd imagine that would be all all the better feeling if, if you've worked hard and get there. In the years that you've been doing this particular beat, as mm-hmm. it were, of government accountability reporting, mm-hmm. have the issues themselves changed or have you felt as if there's just a common theme, whether that theme is ineptitude or corruption or whatever that happens to be? So I have been in Nebraska for – I so I grew, I grew up in Nebraska. I said that already. But I left and I went to Washington State for six years. And I just came back to Nebraska a year and a half ago. So I will have a different perspective on that than someone who's been reporting in Nebraska for a decade because Nebraska is politically entirely different than Washington. Um, and I was a state house reporter there. And uh, yeah, there's ineptitude and there's there's uh, the corruption and there's all sorts of things I think in any state government, but the players are different, the politics are different, the, um, the very structure of the state house is so different um, than the unicameral. It's just like things, things are different. Uh, but I think that would be a really, really good question. Like, I would love to know as someone who's been around Nebraska's um, political scene for longer than me. Uh, I would love to know their answer to that. So I want to join some dots. Okay. So we spoke a little bit earlier about you as a child and being imaginative and, and, and then journaling these stories mm-hmm. and sharing them. You went to study journalism to embark on this career. And I'm wondering what it was that motivated you to actually study to be a journalist. Sure. I uh, went into college not knowing at all what I, wanted to, what I wanted to do. I was an undecided major at Creighton. I um, saw a flyer for a documentary film, uh, journalism documentary film crew going to Uganda. And I was like, I think that sounds really interesting. Eventually, so I went on that trip, and um, it was a good experience. I liked interviewing people. I liked uh, the story, the script writing process, the um, storytelling process there. I eventually um, declared my major in journalism. I loved it. It was a great fit for me. Then I just went off on the totally different angle. I um, After school, I was I didn't see any jobs in journalism that I wanted and that I was qualified for. And so I went and worked at the Apple store, applied to grad schools, decided, oh, I'm only going to write about child development is what I decided because I really enjoyed my child sight classes. I've always loved studying that. <laughs> and then I so uh, and my husband was applying to grad schools, too. We both got into UW in Seattle. We moved out to Seattle after two quarters in grad school. I withdrew. I was like, this is not what I want. In fact, I I learned a lot about myself realizing that I don't want to be narrowed down. 
what I love about journalism is that you get to just keep learning all the time about all these different things and you get to talk to new people, dive in, like dive headlong into these uh, really wonky topics that you think are going to be so boring but end up being incredibly interesting and then pull out again and then go to the next one. And it's so fun. And I I finally was like, you know, it almost was like I give in, like I want, this is what I want to do. <laughs> um, that's my story of how I got there. It was not straightforward. It was very um, winding. And then getting back into journalism, was very hard. The jobs I held for those few years are funny. They are funny. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to share any of those stories? Uh, sure. Uh, well, at first, I actually really loved, I, I was with a one-on-one behavioral aid for a little boy with autism, and that was really fulfilling and wonderful, just not what I wanted to do long-term um, as I was trying to get into journalism again. I worked for a journalism startup that was fun, but it was just a fellow, so it was three months. Uh, the funniest one, uh, and I don't know why funny is probably not the right word. The the uh, most unexpected was this app that like you could order craft beer on and um, have it sent to your like box of craft beer sent to your house, I guess. And I and a team of writers would uh, start every morning, and we would have a bunch of beers on the table and choose one, and then. Uh, it'd be all like talk about what they tasted like and then um, that you choose one to write about for the day and then you just take it back to your desk and drink it while you wrote about the beer and that was my job and it was ridiculous and it was and so that was <laughs> that was one such job I think it was like a month and then eventually moved to Olympia and that's where I got really into the journalism that's how I, how I became a state house reporter as we were in Olympia and um, it turned out to be awesome This is going to be a terrible segue then from <laughs> craft beer to child soldiers. Oh, gosh. Exactly. Uh, uh, yeah. But you mentioned going to Uganda uh, when you were studying journalism in, in Creighton and Creighton. Mm-hmm. And a part of that revolved around this documentary around child soldiers. Right. And you talked about invest, um, interviewing a lot of people. And uh, one of these child soldiers was someone called Samuel. Mm-hmm. But a big Part of this was its multimedia, long-form mm-hmm. way of telling this story, to investigate it, to exploit, to unpack it, but to do so with rich media. Yeah. And I'm asking you about that because it feels to me as if the new face of journalism cannot be just a print paper of record. We, we're long past the point of that being viable. So I'm curious about what you learn about journalism through that project in Uganda? I think that I learned that if there if there's an audience for it, and I think there is, that people respond when there's a well thought out um, multifaceted in-depth story uh, that they can interact with in ways. Uh, I, I think don't get me wrong. I think there's a, a place for the for the paper. I've loved working at newspapers, and I think that newspapers have tried to adapt to to also include some of these things, like video, and um, and I've always had you know, photos as a big piece of that. But to be able to, I really enjoyed right, uh, working on that project, uh, multimedia, online, living online, because it's so 
um, interactive and it's so moldable. Like you can just, you can change things. You can, it's like more alive in that way. And you can, it's, it almost became, that project was like this grant funded project. I ended up just uh, coming at it from all different angles. It's this one topic, but you can come at it from like a research on child soldiering and reintegration from this one person's story to illustrate what actually reintegration can look like, um, resources to learn more, to help. Like there are just, uh, it's so much more intuitive to read it that way that that particular story that way than to, and to watch his story in a video um, than it is to read it all entirely. And then at the very bottom have like a couple, you know, bullet points of what you can do to help or where you can learn things. And then you're never going to go there because it's not a live link or whatever. Um, like it just, it, there are certain things that it just feels right to have them live in online in that way. Has that experience and others that you've had changed how you construct a story in your head, how you actually tell the story, and perhaps how you then think about this is what you need to do to get the story? Probably. I've never thought about that, but probably. I, I think about when I was putting that together, there was, I had a transcript from my interviews, transcripts on transcripts on and from my interviews, and I would, I haven't done this <laughs> maybe since, but I would like cut out quotes from my transcript and then had those on the big table in the journalism lab in, uh, at Creighton and just like moved them around, tested them out here, tested them out like high up in the story, down low in the story in the middle and like physically moved things around. And I think that might be, maybe that helps inform how I do it now. It's just, it's also not something I've had the luxury for a profession in my professional life. I haven't had the luxury of just working on a story for three months and that's all. Um, or, and I think that lended itself to that really intense like obsession and, um, I, and maybe like it definitely was a learning experience that, that, that helps me still today. I think, uh, think about who are the other sources that I need to talk to. Can I talk to an expert in this? Can I talk to somebody with lived experience? That's like, sure. But, I haven't had, I don't think, that sort of time for one story. Maybe I will in my new job. We'll see. Well, I do want to talk about Flatwater Free Press mm -hmm. in, in a while. Before we get there, I, the nature of media, how it's told, the channels we use, the kinds of stories and places that people consume, it's rapidly changing. It's very organic and, and extremely dynamic. I'm curious about how you look at your own personal career and potential and what you see the landscape looking like today and perhaps for tomorrow. Sure. Um, I think that I've never really been risk averse and I think that's why this <laughs> career choice has been uh, fine. I mean, I've, I have felt fine going into a job that I don't know how long I can keep pretty much always. And I think that helps. And being open to these different, like finding things like a writing about craft beer, like things that just like can help exercise the muscle as you're trying to just get the job that you want. I also am open to things like, like Flatwater Free Press is so interesting and exciting and uh, fresh. And it felt 
like because I'm not risk averse and because I'm not I'm comfortable diving into something that's maybe somewhat of an unknown um, in the but but becoming more common all the time this model as in terms of like the industry and big observations there I probably don't have anything to to add that hasn't been out there because you know, people talk about it all the time in these negative this negative light and for me I just I think my my big takeaway is it's so important and people value it and if you can just get it to them then I'm happy. <laughs> they need people need it. You need journalists. Uh, you need people that have an eye on government and on the institutions that are around you. Uh, and I just I hope that we keep getting it in front of people in ways that they'll actually consume. Well, to butcher the adage around a well-informed public and perhaps our fear that we have a polity that is not well-informed. Do you just throw your hands in, up in the air with despair? Or do you have hope for journalism to reach the publics that I need have, to be reached? I have hope. And I think I think that's because of the people that I've worked with and I work with now. It's just pe- the people that are doing it are so passionate. And like you don't do it unless you really believe in it because it's that would be – what a sad thing. If you're doing it all day and then you go home and you think this is pointless, like that's – no. The reason that people – or at least I guess the reason – speak for myself, the reason that I do it. Because you do have hope that people are reading it and there's, and there's going to be change. Uh, change can be affected by the work you're doing. And I, I – yeah, I think that it's still happening and it's still possible. I think it's just going to continue to evolve and look different sometimes. I love that you share that you have a high risk tolerance. I I think increasingly I realize that I do not. (laughs) Um, And maybe this is a little unfair, but I can imagine an older generation uh, saying to me, take the steady path. But that's not what you've done. You have a number of well-respected institutions um, as uh, newspapers behind you. And you have left those behind yeah. so that you could join Flatwater Free Press. Yeah. What is Flatwater Free Press and what is the position that you've decided to jump into? Yeah. Uh, Flatwater Free Press is an independent nonprofit newsroom. They are really focused on uh, more investigations and more in-depth storytelling that helps people uh, understand Nebraska living here it's uh the powers that be here um oh and they offer I think importantly they offer this uh stories for free to anyone to republish and they also collaborate with other uh, news organizations I think it's incredibly exciting I think it's needed I think it's fun it's going to be really fun um and I think uh for me my but the job that I am going into November 1st is government watchdog reporter and that's exactly the kind of work I like to do. And it's with a small team of really talented people. And I say that I'm not risk averse. I don't feel that it's a risk actually be going there. I feel it probably feels like a, a risk to some people to leave an established newspaper like the World Herald. I loved the World Herald. It's maybe the first time I've like left a job that I loved because the people there are great. The work I was doing, I loved there too. This just felt like what I needed right now. And it's really going to be, like, I think it's a great fit. Um, the sort of work that I'll be doing there is just spot on with my personal um, interest and personal mission. So more in-depth investigations still really focus in on that, just like totally focus in on that rather than sort of 
the newspaper environment were the daily deadlines, um, sometimes call and are a welcome distraction from your big stories. Um, not just it's not just like a inconvenience. It's like oh, I don't have to focus. I can go to write this breaking news story. So I want to draw a distinction then, perhaps between this idea of citizen journalism mm. and what may still be regarded as um, older or traditional or mainstream journalism, and what seems to be this new breed of journalistic sources, which I would think of as Flatwater Free Press, for mm. example, or maybe mm. an Omaha Noise Omaha, um, those sorts of entities. Yeah. I- I'm just curious, what is that distinction between a citizen doing reporting and a professional journalist doing journalism in a new sort of format, a new institution? I think uh, ethics, like a dedication to ethics in terms of uh, journalistic ethics, like uh, sourcing and um, how you approach your stories. Sourcing your stories, also where you, how you get your stories, like where you're finding them, how you're finding them. Um, I, something I really like about Flatwater is they, like, on their website, they have all of their, that's very upfront, very transparent in terms of where their money's coming from. Uh, the separation between that and the editorial and their values, I don't know the words they use, but essentially just their documentation that shows uh, what they're up to and the set of ethics that, that drive it. Uh, citizen journalism has a, place, I'm sure. I, I, don't, I don't think that, but I think that you know when you're reading journalism versus when you're seeing content from uh, that somebody is, is posting because they're seeing it firsthand, which you know, is journalism in a sense, but it's not like the, the investigations. It's not the well-edited, multiple minds have looked at this and made sure that it feels like it's piecing together something that's the truth. It's, it's different, right? So, you know, listeners may be thinking about the Facebook friend who has said they've researched on Google mm. um, or they saw something with their own eyes. Okay. But but that's literally the extent of which that, as it were, investigation or, as you say, content has been produced. Yeah, I guess I wasn't thinking about that as citizen journalism, but maybe, yeah, I guess in a way to say, I saw someone get robbed. Like that is a that's a news story. <laughs> like if you saw it happen, right? That's and you're the first you're the but you're the source. If someone can then say, "Okay, where did this happen? Uh what was the response? Was this person uh why did they why did they feel that they needed to <laughs> rob someone?" Like there's a million other stories there that maybe a journalist would would come in and, and see, right? Um so I guess I forget what the question is at this point, but I feel <laughs> I feel like uh, maybe I haven't given enough thought to what a citizen journalist is on on Facebook. Uh, obviously, I don't I don't if you're seeing somebody just post something a firsthand account of something, I just take it as a firsthand account of something and not as in my head it doesn't register as journalism. I'm not sure I actually know what citizen journalism means either. <laughs> I was thinking in terms of. So many people have access to tell a story, mm. to do some kind of research for themselves, to yeah. capture yeah. content and then to you know package it, um, edit yeah. it and present it in ways that I think in some ways we all feel like we're capable of recording something and sharing it 
And is that reporting? Is that journalism uh, contrasted with, mm. um, for example, uh, a long-form investigative piece in um, The New Yorker or something like that? Maybe there's just a spectrum. I think that it's just... Uh is journalism in the eye of the beholder? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I know what I the kind of journalism that that I feel is uh, what I want to do, and what I think what I've grown to think of as journalism because that's what I do and what I love. For you, mm-hmm. what are the qualities needed to be a good journalist? Well, uh, curiosity. I would say. <laughs> for better or worse, anxiety. <laughs> I feel that I get so anxious that something's going to be wrong that I end up rechecking and checking and checking. And, you know, that that for me has served me. <laughs> um, so curiosity, maybe rather than anxiety, let's just say uh, dedication to truthfulness, um, resourcefulness, because you can feel like you're hitting a dead end, but there's always somebody else you can call or another place you can look. Um, and probably being a good listener. That's important. You have to be able to really hear what people are saying, even if they're not saying it out loud, so you can ask the right question next, get to what they're actually meaning, that sort of thing. You know how that goes. Is there anything about yourself that you've come to realize that perhaps maybe gets in your way? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um that same anxiety that I think makes my work better can also lead to 3 a.m., you know, waking up in the middle of the night, thinking about silly details that um, then in the morning I'll, I'll check and realize, oh, I had that right. You know, like, I think that can lead, I mean, I don't ask any of my old editors how many texts they've gotten from me at, like, 11 p.m. or whatever just saying like I don't know about this like whatever that it's just like I don't know if it gets in the way of my work as much as it gets in the way of like health right (laughs) but it's not it's not good um that and then you know sometimes I I've had to learn I think how to be comfortable in confrontation I've over time learned how to ask the hard-hitting questions of powerful people because that's not something that necessarily comes naturally to a person who's raised the way I was in in, the Midwest. I am going to describe you using someone else's words. So in this case, this is Matt Wynn, your new employer at Flatwater Free Press. He says this of you. She is probing but respectful. She is whip-smart yet humble. She is well-sourced and a joy to be around. Do you recognize yourself? Oh, man. That was a very nice thing that he wrote. Um, I think the best version of me, I would hope, are those things. Does that make sense? It's hard to think of yourself. It's hard to think of myself in that way. Um, But I hope those things are true. That came to my mind because you talked about having to get a little more comfortable with um, conflict. Yeah. And probing is the word that yeah. Matt used. And, and and I think that's part and parcel of what you're getting at. You need to, I would imagine, be quite tenacious to stick at it, as it were. 
Yes. Yeah. And I think that that is definitely something I, I um I would add to that list earlier, just having that innate sense of like I'm being uncomfortable with something that feels unjust or not right. And then just not letting it go, um, not letting something go. Because uh, I that is 100 percent true. You have to. It, it helps, I think, maybe just that you're if someone is naturally like I feel like I am naturally like need to reach the resolution with that. Like I cannot let it go if if somebody like and that's uh what we were talking about earlier with the with the state trooper story. It's like okay, so I'm not getting it through the official channel and as frustrating as that is, you know there's another way to get the answer. And it's gonna be the long way, but you have to take the long way and you're gonna stick it out and you're gonna get to the answer and it feels so good when you get there. Yeah. So yeah, that's probing that is that is definitely something you you should be too as a journalist. Is this the counterpoint, that sense of what is morally good, what is ethically right in the world? Is that the counterpoint that prevents you from doing this work and frankly just getting cynical and pessimistic mm-hmm. about our civic and social institutions? The counterpoint being like uh, when you ask if it's the counterpoint, you're saying like that work, is it help me from becoming cynical? Is that yes, and okay. vice versa. I I could see, I could see doing the work you do, could make one feel cynical yeah. about the state of our civic institutions. Oh, definitely, definitely. That's yes. Definitely get a healthy dose of cynicism with any with any journals because you can't. I mean, you just hit brick wall after brick wall. It's eventually going to be like, all right, guys, we have, for instance, like we have a freedom of information laws for a reason. We have, but you have enough um, people. I think yes, cynicism with what with government with this with the institutions, but not. But there's so many people who are frustrated just like you are and really want to get through. Um, like, I mean, sitting down with Matt and Matthew, for example, it's just like you can get fired up. You can get fired up about doing the work to break through that. And that's the piece, I think, that cuts through the cynicism. So you spend a lot of time investigating the world, as it were, externally to yourself. But I'm wondering if in the process of doing that, you have also found that you have been investigating and reflecting upon your own self, who you are as a person. Not consciously. Maybe. <laughs> but not consciously. I would say I had a really hard um, 2020. I was a reporter in Washington. For part of it, I think I was a local reporter and then I was a state house reporter but there was all this unrest in Olympia. There was a lot of protests, obviously, but then also there was like a January local kind of January 6th rally that I reported on. Just all this turmoil was very, very close to home. And I think I learned a lot about myself because I was a reporter who was always like, we were living in a downtown apartment and I'd hear it and be like, okay, I got to go out there. And then it was like always out there. And, it, and I think that taught me about myself, just being out with people who were so passionate and being an observer instead of someone who's participating. That was just really interesting. I think, though, big picture, I have tied my identity to my job a lot. Um, and that, honestly, 
having kids four months ago was the first it's like one of the first steps I think to sort of separating myself like who am I without without journalism for four months it's just in, it's that's told me more about myself than than the work I think that's that's my answer <laughs> I feel as if in some ways journalists are a new breed of hero for our times mm-hmm. and they display a necessary courage does that feel reasonable to you for me to have that observation it feels like i kind of want to like shrink in front of that do you know what i mean like that feels kind of lofty kind of like necessity yes i think you have to also have some amount of privilege to do it because like in my case for example i am married to someone who has a steadier job than me like I, i feel like um sure also journalists have egos already so I don't think you need to call us heroes. <laughs> so I'll hold on to that for you then. That is a lofty burden, as it were, to carry, and I don't want to place that on you. I'll okay. hold you in that esteem, let's put it that way. Well, that's kind of you. Um, there's also something on your website that I want to connect to, but this is on your website under the label Passion Projects. Mm-hmm. And uh, the title of this uh, talk you gave at Ignite Seattle is menstrual cup enlightenment. Mm-hmm. And I mean, people maybe are listening now thinking, feeling a bit squeamish about this, <laughs> yeah. but I think that's the point. The point is about what is it to be human? And this is very much a part of that. And, and that's part of your reporting job, but also part of this story. Yeah. So could I invite you just to share a little bit more about what is that subject and, and what were you doing with the presentation? Sure. Um, that was born out of just an interaction I had with a friend and then I kind of noticed my own reaction to the idea of a menstrual cup and then it kind of got me thinking about like why did I feel that way when like I found myself getting very uh, frustrated with this idea of not being able to understand or talk about something that so many people experience and that I had internalized a lot of that too and um I pitched that to Ignite Seattle, which is this kind of intense public speaking format where it's five minute speeches. And I had never done public speaking before. And I was like, well, if if I feel as passionately about something like this, I'm going to do it in front of, it was like 800 people. It's the only time I've ever done public speaking. And And it was a great experience. And I got a lot of good feedback from people in the audience because in the end, I think everyone wants, like has like a piece of them that wants to talk about that. Or like if so many people are experiencing something but are refusing to talk about it like that's just isn't that annoying like it's so annoying (laughs) that and so frustrating that uh there's some sort of blockage there and internalized by so many people um and so to break it open felt really good i don't know if i ever do i have even explicitly said what i talked about i don't know if i have okay so basically just talked about menstrual cups because it's stupid that it's uncomfortable to talk about menstrual cups. And then that's kind of like the moral of the story is, why can't we talk about these things that are kind of not universal, but very, very common experiences. And we've decided that we can't talk about them. And I don't want to trivialize anything, but in the same way that we have other topics in society that we stigmatize, that we feel uncomfortable talking about. So mental health is, is an example of that. Um, as is corruption or a sense of our complicity in racism or so-called white guilt, this sort of thing. There are subjects that I think we refuse to touch. 
And so, again, I don't mean to trivialize this by focusing on that presentation you gave, but it feels as if you were piercing one element of stigma that we hide behind. I hope so. I think that's right. The idea there is not just like, let's stop at this. Let's talk about this one thing because we all experience it. It's also like, think about the things that we don't talk about that we should. And that's just one of them. So let's finish with me inviting you to share. You embark on this new position soon. Mm -hmm. Are there topics that you want to shine a light on? Is there a stigma that you want to tackle? Is there something that is common to our human condition that you want to uh, illuminate in some way? Yes, I have a lot of stories that I'm excited to pursue. Long list of records requests to get out. I'm not going to say what I want to write about because you should subscribe to the newsletter and find out what we write about. But also, I think if I were to kind of like throw it all under one category, it's to help people engage with the institutions that are making decisions for them, that are affecting the world, the way that they're living, whether they know it or not, that are making the decisions that decide how much of their paycheck is spent. Helping people connect to that, I don't think that's stigma, but it's mystified. Um, Intentionally or unintentionally, these structures feel inaccessible, and I want to help them access them and then hopefully feel comfortable talking about them too. My guest today has been journalist Sarah Gensler. Sarah, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. This was nice. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.